Welcome to episode 301 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So we've been on this journey to get a better sense of the different offices, the roles that Christ plays and how that comes into our theology and then goes out into the world in terms of how we behave and how we live and how we understand our obedience to our King. And we're getting to the place where we're going to talk about Christ as priest. But I think before we do, it might be best to give the people a little summary of where you've been so far so they understand where you're going on this episode. Yeah, so we are kind of structuring this conversation about Christ um, Christology around the way that the Westminster Catechism, the larger catechism, particularly approaches this. And so we started off, you know, talking about how um, the Son is truly God, um, and how that is sort of the foundational reality of the person of Christ. So a lot of times we think about the dual natures of Christ, and we sort of think almost in terms like these two natures came together and, and a new reality came into being, right? A new person came into being. Um, so we, we want to reject that. Christ uh, was and always will be the second person of the Trinity, truly God, unchanging, immutable. Nothing nothing is affected in uh, his divine nature by the incarnation. And in the incarnation, we moved on to now the second step of that is that he adds to himself a human nature in such a way where he makes that human nature personal in his person. So he remains a fully divine person. He takes that human nature into himself and he makes that nature personal. He hypostatizes it. Um, we didn't talk about the the language, but we talk about an anhypostatic, anhypostatic uh, nature, which is a kind of a hypothetical nature that doesn't actually exist because it's not hypostatic. It's not personalized. So it, it has no actual existence. It's a theoretical concept. Uh, and then we talk about an anhypostatic nature, uh, which there's only one of those that we are aware of in all of history. And that's the human nature that becomes uh, hypostatic in, that's where that en prefix comes from, in the person of, of the son. And then we moved on to discuss um, that Christ, his two natures, these two natures remain distinct even as they are united in the one person. Um, and so we talked about the the various troubles that we can run into if we lose that distinction between the two natures. It's funny. I saw a tweet on Twitter this morning um, that was, uh, I want to say it was well-meaning, but I'm not even sure that it was. Um, it was in one of these Christology, theology proper kinds of argument threads that have been developing lately. And there's a particular uh, guy who at one point in the reform pub said he thought that Wayne Grudem was the finest systematic theologian the church has ever seen, uh, which I don't even think Wayne Grudem would say that about himself. I don't know anyone that would say that about Wayne Grudem. Um, nothing, nothing against Wayne Grudem as a guy. He seems like a nice dude, but he's just, that's just not his wheelhouse. It's not his strength. And he, he knows that he's not like, he's not the next bobbing. He doesn't think he is or anything like that. But he said today, um, that the, the natures are united in one person. And so what, what one nature experiences, the other one also does. So we, we, we talked a lot about how, when you lose that distinction between the natures, you get into all sorts of weird squirrely kinds of situations and theologies. And then we kind of closed that out over the last two weeks here um, with a conversation about the the fact that this one person uh, who is the uh, now the union of these two natures uh, remains one person. Um, and then we shifted into talking about how that one person, the, the Westminster standards, the larger catechism specifically, starts off with this concept that there's the one divine person who in eternity past, um, the persons of the Trinity determined would be the mediator of God's people, and that everything that happens in the incarnation is in service to his role as mediator, his office as mediator. And within the office of mediator, these kinds of these three sub-offices, you might want to call them administrations or something like that, of prophet, priest, and king. So we talked about how Christ as prophet um, kind of empowers the church in terms of revelation and how all of our prophetic testimony and prophetic witness uh, in the church now comes from his word. 
Uh, and when we get outside of the written word, which is what he's left his people, uh, we get outside of Christ. We we stop being a prophetic voice of Christ, and we start being a prophetic voice of something else, uh, whatever that may be. Usually, it's our own our own intuition, our own. I don't know, the bad pizza we ate last night or whatever it might be. And so this week we're moving into that second office of Christ, the second office of the mediator, which is the office of a priest. And I think when we talk about Christ as mediator, most people, they latch on to the priestly elements of Christ's office when they talk about him as mediator, um, which is is natural and it makes sense. The, the primary office of mediating or mediatorship in the Old Testament was the priesthood. Um, so without disregarding the fact that uh, he is the mediator as prophet, he's the mediator as king, which we'll talk about next week. It is normal and natural, and I think wise in some ways, to sort of focus his mediatorship and focus discussions of what it means to be mediator on the priesthood. And so that's where we're going today is we're going to talk about Christ's priesthood, and I think that will naturally lead into kind of the same territory, the same kinds of discussions we had talked about last week where we talked about what it is that Christ gives to the church as a result of his priestly office. I'm going to give you the challenge to do this backwards. So usually we get into all the detail and then you come around at the end to a summary. Start with the summary first and tell us why it's so important. What are the essential elements of understanding Christ as priest? Yeah. So the office of a priest um, predominantly in the Old Testament is is a go between between the people and God. So the priest on one hand represents the people to God in a in a representative fashion. Um, so if you think of the high priest in the Old Testament, he bore the name. He, he had these gemstones on his chest that were the names of the 12 tribes were engraved on these, these gemstones. So his person, his representative person brought all of the 12 tribes, all of the people of Israel into the presence of God on the high holy days. Uh, specifically on on the highest holy day, the Day of Atonement. And then at the same time, uh, in a converse manner, he also represents the people back to God. And so he he the priest has this kind of dual function of representation. He brings brings the people before God in his representative person. And then as God interacts with the priest, the priest then brings that uh, that interaction back to the people. So um you, you look at the book of Hebrews and the, the talks about how the high priest only went into the holy, the holy of holies one day a year, uh, and he went in with blood. Otherwise, he might be killed. Well, if he goes in, and the people are not holy, if proper atonement had not been made for the people, according to Leviticus and the whole apparatus there, then the high priest would be killed, and that was a symbolic representative act of killing the people who are not properly atoned for. So the the mediatorship of Christ functions in that same way. And that's why it is normal for the priesthood of Christ to sort of be the focal point of our discussions about Christ's mediatorship, even though prophet and king are elements of his mediatorial office and they all are united in this one person. The priestly character of Christ is about that interaction and that interplay and that representation between God and the people and then the people and God. And I think Christ's office, Christ's mission really is characterized by this priestly uh, this priestly work, right? And we'll talk about the specific elements of his priestly work. But it's important to get that right because that's the nature of our salvation. If we if we don't get the priestly elements of Christ's work right, then we end up sometimes with some really squirrely kinds of things. If if we think about the priesthood of Christ or what it means to be a priest and then we apply that language in the wrong sense to Christ, then we end up distorting what it is that Christ does and did for his people. Um, and that usually ends us in some sort of legalistic works righteousness model. Um, most famously, that's the, the wrong direction that the Roman Catholic Church goes, right? Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about those those dynamics as we go we go along here. Right. That makes sense. So let's get into it then. So the, the questions, the applicable question in the Westminster um, larger catechism that we're going to kind of structure things around today is question 44. And it reads, how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Just as a side note, before I forget, I'm actually reading uh, the Westminster Confession out of uh, my Alaris Bible software, which is available. You can get in on the ground floor. You still have the ability to purchase that fundamentals package. So you can start building your Lagos library uh, for $50 if you don't have any sort of base package. You can go to reformbrotherhood.com. Uh, I, I think I'm going to create a, a 
little uh, interchange for it, reformbrother.com slash fundamentals. And that'll get you to uh, to that Logos fundamentals package. Or you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos. If you already know you want to jump in on a higher level base package, um, there's some sweet deals you can get. And we're going to be uh, continuing to bring the deals they offer affiliates um, as we go. But I'm reading it out of uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Edinburgh edition, which is a, a just a version of the Westminster standards you can purchase through Logos. And the best part is that when you click on the proof text, for example, I can click on this little footnote here and it's got Hebrews 7.25 and it'll pull that right up. Up in like in line so I can view it. But if I want to go and look further at the book of Hebrews, I click on that and it'll just bring up the whole chapter. So it's all cross-referenced. It's all linked. You don't have to do a lot of like flipping back and forth. Uh, it's really a powerful tool. So if you haven't uh, jumped in on that, make sure you do. Um, it really is a tool that the, I think, I don't think it's understating it to think that this is a blessing on God's church that previous generations just couldn't imagine having this kind of access to information. So check that out, reformbrotherhood.com slash logos. But to get to the question here, um, the question is, question 44, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And the answer is Christ executes the office of a priest, and then it goes into this list of different things that he's done. So he executes the office of a priest in his once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God to be reconciled for the sins of his people. So that's the first thing. He offers himself as a sacrifice to bring about reconciliation uh, of his people. And then the second is in making continual intercession for them. And so right there, just in that those two points, you already see that kind of interface. He offers himself to God on behalf of the people. Right. So that's representing the people to God. And then in the intercession, he's also representing the people to God, but he's also bringing God back to the people. So it's this double directional uh, kind of, and it actually maps up pretty well with sort of the double imputation element of things too. We can talk about that. So we'll, we'll get into this, but I just think this is, this is a really fruitful way to approach the topic um, and go figure the Westminster divines knew what they were doing when they were writing this theology out. <laughs> Who would have guessed? Yeah. So the first element of that is that Christ uh, offers himself as a sacrifice without spot to God. And so this this takes us back to um, things like the Passover, right? It takes us back to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And it's really important for us to recognize the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is a symbolic sacrificial system, right? It's, it's not a crass, direct uh, sacrifice. God um, is not directly pleased, right? So the the sacrificial systems of other ancient religions, you think of like pagan religions or um, polytheistic religions, it, most of the time the concept was that you were bringing this sacrifice to God, to the gods. And in a lot of them, it was because the gods couldn't feed themselves. So you're actually bringing them food and the sacrifice would please them on sort of a crass level. It was a, it was a very anthropomorphized uh, understanding, but not... Not in a symbolic sense. You are actually offering the blood of goats or bulls or humans to the gods because that is what they demanded in order to be satisfied. And a lot of times, like I said, they were trying to, they were eating these offerings. They were placated by them. Um, they were using them to sort of restore their powers. There's all sorts of ways this functioned. In ancient Israel, this wasn't what was going on. The Old Testament is radically clear that God doesn't need any of this. He, he desires obedience and not sacrifice, right? Or he's pleased more by obedience and not sacrifice. So the Old Testament is radically clear that this system is symbolic from the very start. And then as we move through into, you know, into later revelation and we, we get past the person of Christ and we have reflection back on this Old Testament sacrificial system through the person of Christ, primarily in the book of Hebrews, but other places, we understand that the the sacrifice of bulls and goats did not, it wasn't pleasing to God in and of itself. What it was is this was an opportunity for the people to come to God, to offer these sacrifices in faith and trust that God was good to his word. So God said, this is how you're going to make atonement for your sin. This is how your sin will be covered. This is how I will absolve you or resolve your sin is you're going to bring these sacrifices, but you're going to have to do it over and over and over again because they don't actually satisfy me. They don't actually please me. They don't actually atone for my for your sin. And so that points forward then to Christ offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. 
So we we you know we can talk all we want about um, the the work on the cross that Christ did, but if we don't understand it in its Old Testament context, we don't understand that sacrificial system and that it that points forward to the priestly office of Christ, then we are going to get off track. And this is where you get some people who talk about like cosmic child abuse or human sacrifice. I heard I read one article on the internet a couple of weeks ago. Someone was trying to make the argument that. Um, Christianity actually was a sort of mutation of a of a cult um, that it was thriving on on human sacrifice, and so Jesus just became kind of like this figurehead character who was the ultimate ultimate human sacrifice to God, and that is not at all what's happening in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, the the priests bring these sacrifices that are external to themselves. And each of these sacrifices bears symbolic value of some sort. And the primary symbolic value is that the people were trusting in God by bringing these. Uh, in some instances, the sins of the people were imputed to uh, to the sacrificial animal in, in a variety of ways. And then that sacrifice kind of was this drama that revealed how God was ultimately going to take care of sin. When we take that then and now we map that to the New Testament and we look at what Christ has done, we see that he is now that sacrificial offering, but he is uh, not just the sacrificial offering, but he's also the priest who sacrifices himself. So it's it's not um, it's not as straightforward to say that Christ offers a sacrifice. It's not as straightforward to say that Christ is a sacrifice. We really have to maintain both of those elements of it. That Christ is both the priest offering the sacrifice. And he is also the sacrifice itself. And those two things together constitute sort of that first element of that priestly office of Christ. Maybe you could speak a little bit more to why it was both significant and necessary that he be both of those things, maybe touching on Romans with the idea of Christ being just and justifier. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when you look at the, just go back to the, the Levitical system, um, the, the day of atonement, right? This one day a year where all of the sins of the people were more or less focused on this day and and taking care of. And I don't want to get into all of the details of the scapegoat ceremony and there's all sorts of different interpretations of that and different understanding of what that means. But the the main core element to focus on is that the priest first had to bring this sacrifice of a bull to purify himself. So so the normal sacrifice was a lamb. And if you think about the difference in, you know, like um ranching, I guess. You think about the difference in in how those herds work, right? Most uh most herds don't have a bunch of bulls, right? You have you have a ranch, you've got one or two or or a handful of bulls, and the rest are supposed to be um cows, right? So bringing a bull was a was a greater sacrifice than bringing a a lamb because there's lots of lots and lots of ewes and each of them at some point has a firstborn lamb and so you, there's more of those not that it wasn't costly not that it wasn't difficult um it wasn't a sacrifice but the sacrifice of the bull was an elevated sacrifice for the high priest and so the priest has to make sacrifice to purify himself first and then he has to go and he has to bring the sacrifice of the people which in this instance on the day of atonement was a was this Symbolic ritual with two goats, one goes out into the wilderness, one, one is killed and brought in, the blood is brought into the sanctuary. And so Christ has to bring himself to the Father, but he's already spotless. And so that, that spotlessness of Christ serves both as the spotlessness of the priest, right? So the priest had to be purified, the priest had to be spotless in this symbolic representative ritual, but then also the lamb or, or in the day of atonement, the goats that were brought also had to be spotless lambs or goats or whatever. So when you look at this, you start to see that Christ has to serve both of those functions in order for the sacrifice to, to sort of fit the mold or for the, I suppose, for the mold to fit the sacrifice because the, the sacrifice of Christ is the archetype and the um, the Levitical system and the other sacrificial elements, those point towards the reality. That's what Hebrews says, is that this is the heavenly reality and the earthly sacrifices point to that reality. And when you get to, you talking about Romans, you talk about the just and the justifier, is the one who justifies can't himself need to be justified, right? Now, Christ is justified in, in a different sense, um, you know, that language is present in Romans, but the priest comes to the temple um, and has to be purified 
So in a certain sense, the priest had to be justified prior to bringing the sacrifice, to, to go back to that. Christ can be the just justifier because he already is pure and spotless. And so there's there's no one else who could have brought that ultimate sacrifice that did not need to be repeated because, and this is the point that Hebrews makes, the priest had to make this purification year after year after year. And at some point that priest was going to die. And so the new priest had to be ordained, which involved sacrifice. The new priest had to be purified, which involved, you know, repeated sacrifice. But Christ is able to come to God as the just justifier because he is pure and spotless. So his priesthood is a different kind of priesthood. It's a priesthood of a different character and nature than the Levitical priesthood in that it is a once for all eternal sacrifice that is efficacious, not just at the point of sacrifice and for a time, but once for all, for all of the people whom he would save. So I think that's that's a really key part of this is that Christ has to offer himself because he is the only Uh, He's the only valid sacrifice. He's the only truly spotless sacrifice that there is to offer. But he has to be the one to offer himself because he also is the only spotless sacrificer, if that makes sense. So So, both in his his act of sacrificing, he has to be spotless in order for it to be once for all effective. But also the sacrifice has to be perfect and spotless in order for that once for all sacrifice to be effective. So those dual elements of it only Christ as the God man could fulfill both of those elements in a single person in a single act. So it sounds like in some ways what you're saying is we were always looking backwards in the sacrificial system, even into the old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at the same time, when we're reading the old Testament, we're always looking forward to Christ, right? So that's, that's one of the beauties of, I think this is a strength of the reformed sort of biblical theological tradition um, or redemptive history tradition. And although I, I resonate with some of the criticisms that um, redemptive historic preaching can sometimes uh, be a little bit anemic in terms of doctrinal content, um, I think this is a strength of it is that no matter what we're doing, one, one of the things you hear sometimes is that we should read the New Testament, the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. There's a certain wisdom in that. We've actually talked about that on a question cast in the past about whether or not um, Presbyterians are guilty of reading the New Testament in light of the Old Testament and whether you should read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. In reality, you're reading both in light of each other, and you're actually reading all of them in light of the historical person of Christ and what Christ did. But the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is meaningless, not meaningless. It's it's obscured and dark and it's it's seen through a you know a mirror dimly to try and steal Paul's language even though Paul's talking about something else it's seen in this obscured fashion in mystery in the Old Testament until you have the revelation of Christ and his ministry and his sacrifice but at the same time Christ's sacrifice cannot have its full meaning or you cannot understand Christ's false the meaning of Christ's full sacrificial meaning unless you're also interpreting it in light of what the Old Testament reveals and how the Old Testament um, narratives function. So I'm not usually a big fan of um, the Bible Project. I think they have a lot of really dangerous ideas, and I think sometimes they um, they really get it wrong. But they're doing a series right now on Leviticus, and they talk about the Day of Atonement. And one of the things about the Day of Atonement that is a little bit strange is um, the sins, the traditional way of understanding the Day of Atonement, I guess we are going to get into this, the, the, there's these two goats that are brought in. So once the priest has been purified with the sacrifice of a bull, he brings in these two goats. And one of the goats, he places his hand on the head of that goat, and he pronounces the sins of Israel upon the head of that goat. And this is, a, this is like an ordination ceremony, basically. He presses his hand onto that goat and he he pronounces the sins of the people onto that goat. And so this is a symbolic transfer of the sins of the people to the goat. And then the goat takes takes those sins far away into the wilderness. And we we don't know whether that goat lives or dies. It's a domesticated goat being sent out to the desert, so probably doesn't last for very long. But the point of the uh, sacrifice, the point of this ritual is not that the goat is killed. It's that the sins are given to the goat and the goat takes the sins far away, right? This is the language we see his, you know, he casts the sins into the sea of forgiveness or as far as the East is from the West. That's how far the Lord has put his transgressions away from you. That's what's going on in this element of it. The sins are given to the goat. The goat literally carries the sins away, cast them out in the wilderness where they, they go away from the people. 
Now, the second goat, um, the sins of the people are not, at least explicitly, are not imputed to the second goat who is sacrificed and brought into the, the temple. This goat instead is killed and his blood is brought into the temple. But this is a pure spot, spotless goat who represents the purity of the priest. And again, this is controversial, but he represents the priest and he represents the life of the people being brought into the presence of God. And God accepts the life of those people. And so in a certain sense, if, if a sinful person goes into the presence of God, that person is killed. But when the, the pure spotless blood goes into uh, the temple, God accepts that. He accepts that pure spotless and that representative life of the people. And so the goat, the goat in the wilderness is taking the sins of way away and the goat that goes into the temple or the blood of the goat that goes into the temple in many senses is bringing the people's presence into the presence of God. So again, it's that double element. It's, it's sacrifice to take the sins away. And then also a certain element of sacrifice to bring the people into the presence of God. Now, when we're talking about Christ, we see both of those things happening as well, right? And this is this is the double imputation model, right? So Christ, the sins of, of the people are imputed to Christ, and then those sins are punished in Christ on the cross, right? He offers himself up as a, a spotless sacrifice to reconcile the people to God, right? So that he takes the sin of the people, those sins are punished, and, and in effect, they're cast out into the wilderness. They're sent away. They're as far as the east is from the west. The sins are no longer associated with the people in God's mind in this anthropomorphic sense. But then at the same time, Christ now rises into heaven. This is part of why the ascension of Christ is so central to our, our salvation. Christ now goes into heaven, and we're gonna. this is going to bring us to that second part of the definition. He goes into heaven, into the presence of the Father, and he brings us with him. Right? Paul says we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We already exist in heaven in the mind of God, seated in our eternal reward. So Christ does that by bringing himself into the presence of the Father, physically, as, a, as the second Adam. He brings himself into the presence of the Father. He makes intercession on our behalf. He's appealing to the Father on our behalf. But even just his presence in the presence of the Father, his righteous presence in the presence of the Father, he brings us with him when he does that. So um, I forget the particular reference, but in Romans, Paul talks about if we're baptized into a death like his, we'll be raised to new life in a resurrection like his. This is priestly language, right? The death of Christ is imputed to us. Christ represents us as he dies. So we're baptized into that death. We're ritually, ceremonially, and spiritually connected to that death such that that death is our death in a concrete sense, not just a representative symbolic sense. At the same time, Christ's resurrection is also our resurrection, not in just a symbolic sense, but in a concrete sense. So it's not entirely untrue to say we have already been raised from the dead in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul says. We've already been seated in the heavenly places, but we're just kind of waiting for that fulfillment of that, for the actualization of that to sort of, for us to kind of catch up with that reality in a certain sense. We've been swept up in the train of Christ as he ascends into heaven, and we're sort of being dragged along um, by like the draft of him passing by. We're being dragged along in that draft, and eventually we will be kind of caught up to that. We'll catch up to that draft where we will now be actualized into our seatedness. So I think that this, this double action of the incarnation, resurrection, crucifixion, death, resurrection, this double action of it is really central to the priesthood of Christ. And I just think we, we, this is another one of those undervalued, underemphasized um, elements of Christ's incarnate ministry that I think we, we all would do better to kind of go back and look. It's funny. People start their reading plans in December or in January. And there's always the joke that like sometime, sometime in, you know, what is it? It's probably like late February, early March, you get to Leviticus and you stall out. I never stall out in Leviticus anymore because I, I sit there and I read it and I'm just like, it's like just wraps my attention around it because all I see on the page is Jesus Christ. It's really, really encouraging to me. I stall out when I get to like first and second Samuel, that's where I start to struggle. But once you get this element of Christ's ministry and you understand how it really relates to our salvation, 
and Christ's ongoing work on our behalf, suddenly things like the book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy, that law portion at the end of number of, of Exodus and the book of Numbers, suddenly these become alive and real and in, in your face and encouraging and edifying in a way that they weren't before. So I would just really encourage people to sort of like take a step back, read the book of Hebrews, and then go back and read the book of Leviticus because it really is great stuff. It's really, really, really important spiritually. So how do people then come alive in their faith by understanding this? So you just mentioned both bridging Hebrews and Leviticus and seeing all those things, reading the Old Testament, understanding things backwards and forwards. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how this does breed life into our practice of piety and faith. Yeah. I mean, I think um, sometimes we can feel and therefore practice our religion in a way where the sacrifice of Christ is sort of like the sacrifice of the lambs in the Old Testament, right? We think about it in this sense of it not being actualized to us. You know, sometimes evangelical language of like, I got saved is unhelpful because it it minimizes this element of salvation being something that is not just happening at a single point of time and then it's over, but salvation is a, is a state of existence that we are not even being saved. We are saving. Like we are, we're in the process of salvation, not in the sense of like our salvation has an unfolding process, although there's elements of that statement that are true, but that salvation is a reality, a, a finished reality that exists all around us at all, all times. So there's a certain element of saying I got saved at a certain point in time. Usually we're talking about justification, but pointing to a point in time where your salvation started. And there's a, there's an element of reality pointing to sort of a point in the future where salvation will be kind of consummated and actualized and finished uh, in a sense. But looking at our salvation as a current thing, salvation is mine in Christ, not I got saved is mine in Christ, not I will be saved in Christ, but salvation is a new reality. It's a new way of life, of life for me. And I think when you can think about that, the intercession of Christ as our priest, our high priest, the intercession of Christ is the ongoing reality of that. So when I feel, um, you know, a lot of times when we feel like we have failed at a particular element of our faith, um, I, I've thrown myself out there like I struggle to pray. I don't pray as much or as fervently or as uh, diligently as I should. And this is something that I hear from a lot of Christians that prayer is, prayer is just hard. It's a tough discipline and um, it takes discipline and practice and it's, it's just hard. When I fail to pray the way I should, I think there's a certain level of holy conviction that the Holy Spirit places on us for that, for any of our sins. Um, but at the same time, Christ is still interceding for me just as much as he was, if not more than, uh, if I had been praying well, right. When I, um, when I get cut off on the road on the way to work and my, my anger wells up in a sinful fashion, or when I am stingy with my money and I don't, I don't share it with people who need it, all of these different pick your sin area. When I fail at that, rather than getting, discouraged, um, not that we should ignore it. Again, um, God sends paternal chastisings. He, he disciplines his people. And sometimes that discipline is that sense of guilt and recognition that we have failed to live up to the expectations that God has set for us, that we failed to look like Jesus the way we should. All of that to be said, Christ is still seated on, you know, he's still standing in his mediatorial priestly office. He's still praying on our behalf, right? If you think of, um, the, the account in the Old Testament, I think it's in the book of Numbers, right? The, the people of Israel go out to battle and Joshua's leading the charge. And uh, as long as Moses is praying for the people with his arms in the air, they gain ground. And when he gets tired and his arms lower, um, the people lose ground. And I, I don't understand exactly why there's this connection between Moses with his arms up and Moses with his arms down. I'm sure that's a interesting scholarly debate. But the, the, the point of the account is that as long as Moses is interceding for the people, they have victory in their battle. Well, we have a, a new and better Moses who never grows tired of interceding for his people. And so I don't want to over-spiritualize that, right? That was a real event that really happened, but it also is typological. Moses was acting as an, an intercessor, as a mediator, as a, as a priest figure in that account. 
that he was praying on behalf of the people. He was he was pleading to God for their victory. And as long as he kept his arms up and as long as he was he was persistent in that prayer, they had victory. And when he was tired and he stopped being persistent in his prayer, they lost ground. And Christ serves that same role, but he never grows tired. So I think I think those kinds of elements can really bolster our spiritual life that we it's not just um it's not just that we can have victory in Christ. We already have victory in Christ, right? In Christ, we're more than conquerors. Not sometimes we're conquerors as long as we try really hard and we do really well, but we already are more than conquerors. We already have victory over the battle um, in Christ, who are we're already seated in the heavenly realms. So I think that's that's the primary way when I look at it, that the priesthood of Christ and this reality that Christ is our ongoing intercessor who is in the presence of God, uh, that's the way that it really kind of enlivens my spiritual life that I don't have to now suddenly feel like I'm going to lose my status with God or somehow like I've lost my connection to the power of God because I'm, I'm not doing well at a particular point. The reality is that my connection to the power of God, if you want to talk in those languages, my connection to God is that the Holy Spirit dwells in me and that Christ is interceding for me. And those two things never change for the Christian. So those, I think that really does kind of help me to see that my piety should not be dependent on my personal holiness because it's not, um, I'm trying to phrase this carefully because I don't want to, I don't want to introduce an antinomianism into this because that's not where I want to go, obviously. But our, our piety and our status with God and our effectiveness with God is not dependent on directly on whether or not we have success. It's dependent on the intercession of Christ, which is always successful, never fails, and he never grows tired of interceding for his people. And what distinction do you think there is between this Christian worldview of Christ and what he accomplishes in his priestly role versus other worldviews? And how do you think Christians can best, like crisply, cleanly, quickly almost, communicate that to non-believers? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think that the this is something that I think is is more actually unique to the Reformed perspective, even within Christianity, is that all of these realities are really truly dependent on a covenantal framework. And so, in Islam, for example, there's no covenant between the people and, and Allah. There's no covenant, um, even to the fact that like someone who lives a righteous life and, and follows all the rules, um, Allah may still not grant them salvation. Right? He he. It's not a strict it's not a strict measurement of your righteousness. Um, some of it is capricious. Allah can, can give someone who has not lived a righteous life um, his reward and, so, and not give someone who has lived a righteous life their reward. Um, or you think about atheists, right? There, there's nothing to live towards. There's nothing to live for. And so enjoying this moment in front of us or trying to set up our future moments for enjoyment that's the chief end of man to sort of steal that language. And so for the Christian, not only is our hope in Christ in the future, and that's a secure hope, but our enjoyment and our ability and our status in the here and now is equally as secure in Christ. So I don't have to, even in temporal matters, right? I've told this story before. I, I had a, a friend in college um, who was in my Hebrew class. And I won't go into all the details, but she was killed tragically in a, a really, really bad car wreck. Um, and she was actually coming home from her first ultrasound. And so her her poor husband had lost not only his wife, but his unborn child all in one swift motion. And I will never forget going to the funeral and going into the pulpit. He, he, he ascended into the pulpit to address the people who had come to the funeral. And he had to be helped into the pulpit. He had to be like physically carried into the pulpit because he was so distraught. And as he started to talk about the grace and sovereignty of God and the strength of Christ and the security that his wife and he and his unborn child had in Christ, you could see him physically become stronger. He started to stand up straighter. Um, or even recently, I, I traveled to Minnesota. I shared on the podcast that my mother died in February and I traveled to Minnesota and um, I had an opportunity to share the gospel at uh, the service we did. And it was so clear and easy to explain the problem that people have and to explain the solution 
when you can appeal to the covenantal frameworks that the Bible presents. Other Reformation streams of, of Christian thought, I think, uh, are closer to this. But I, I actually find that some of the other models and understanding of the way that Christ makes atonement, they do sort of lend themselves to this um, sort of error that the atonement is made only on the cross, that our, our redemption, our, like... I found that the sort of generalized evangelical understanding of this that I uh, I understood when I before I became reformed before I started to study the scriptures that I got from my Lutheran megachurch in Minneapolis, um, a lot of this stuff didn't make sense to me. The the language of inheritance, the language of second the second Adam, all of these different covenantal elements of salvation, they didn't make sense to me, and so I think. This particular way of thinking about what Christ has done and what he is doing and what he will eternally be doing um, in this covenantal framework, this mediator framework with these three offices, it really grounds our salvation, our future hope, um, the redemption of the the past woes that we have. Um, All of that is subservient to our salvation too, right? To take that language from the, the first question, the Heidelberg Catechism. All of those things must be subservient to my salvation. And the only reason they can be subservient to my salvation is because I have an eternal high priest who is making intercession for me, who also took and redeemed and planned all of those things for my salvation. I can count all of those things joy when I face those trials of various kinds because I have a great faithful high priest who ever lives to make intercession for me. If that wasn't true, if there was a chance that Christ, to go back to that Moses example, if there was a chance that at some point Christ would put his arms down for me or stop putting his arms up for me, if there was a chance of that, then all my hope is lost. And I think that's where a lot of Christians find themselves because they don't have a good understanding of this this element of Christ's office. Um, They find themselves in a situation where they're not confident that Christ is going to continue to do what he has been doing for them. Um, or even worse, because their hope, um, I don't think there's a lot of people that would explicitly frame it this way, but I find that a lot of evangelicals, especially Armenian striped evangelicals, will identify this point in the past where Christ died for them and obtained their salvation. And then they'll identify this point in the past where they appropriated that that salvation to themselves. Um, and then they live in sort of this constant fear that they're going to lose grasp of that. They're going to lose sight of what Christ did for them and they're going to walk away from the faith. And that is a burden that none of us were meant to bear. And I think that that's when you go back to this question in um, this, this is one other element that I think we have to call out is that Christ executes the office of priest and is once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God, not for a general opportunity for people to be saved, but to be a reconciliation, an actual reconciliation for the sins of his people, not of all people, although there's language in the scripture that uses that. And we can, we have to explain that theologically. We have to understand that we have to grapple with it, but he is a reconciliation for the sins of his people. And that points us back to the sacrificial system of the old Testament. You look at the Passover. There was actually like a mathematical equation, right? One lamb equals X amount of people. I mean, it's not as crass and straightforward as that, but it was like, if you have a small household, then you can share, you can share the sacrificial lamb with another small household. So there was a, there was a concreteness to the sacrifices in the old Testament that actually associated the sacrifices for a specific people. The high priest was not going, he was not casting the sins of all people or the hypothetical sins of the people onto the scapegoat and then casting the scapegoat out into the desert. He was confessing the actual concrete sin of an actual concrete people on the scapegoat. And he was bringing the blood of that second goat into the temple as a representation of an actual numbered populated group of people. And I think that that element of that sort of limited atonement, particular atonement, whatever we want to talk about, that that element of the concreteness and actualness of the salvation that Christ wrought for us and the intercession that Christ makes for us, Christ is not paying, uh, praying for a nameless, faceless, undefined set. 
He's praying for his people who have always been his people. He died for his people. He saved his people. He's praying for his people. He is sweeping his people up in his train into the resurrection, not in a vague, undefined, nameless, empty set way, but in a concrete, actual, these are his people, numbered, named, defined people. So that that element of it, along with the idea that Christ's, Christ's priesthood is an effective priesthood, it really is a it's a it's a bulwark of security for the for the people of God. I never have to fear that I'm outside of God's people if I trust in Christ. If I'm trusting in Christ, then I know that he is mine. He is mine and I am his and nothing can take me away from that. Nothing can take him away from me. And I just think that element of his priesthood is a is a really uh, it's a really undervalued element that I think Reformed theology does particularly well, better than most other traditions. As we draw to a close, I'm reminded again, as you said, that the outworking of all of this theology is that Christ is the resurrection and the life. And I think we would be remiss right now if we didn't mention that, of course, we've had lots of friends and family that are part of the podcast that support us over through the years, some of which we have many, many different people who are in residence, and we have a couple of Lutherans yeah. in residence, and one of those is Chad Bird. Maybe you want to say a little bit about yeah. where Chad Bird is right now and how people might support him. Yeah, for those who haven't heard on social media, um, Chad's uh, adult son uh, was in the military, and he was engaged in some training exercises, I think it, somewhere in South America, I want to say Peru or Chile or somewhere down there. Um, and he, I don't know the details, but he tragically died in a hiking accident. Um, and so I, I know that Chad uh, trusts in in the Lord and Chad's son trusts in the Lord. And Lutherans, uh, for all of my concerns and, and foibles with Lutheranism, one thing that they get right is that um, those who are in Christ are really, really, really in Christ and cannot be taken from him. And so on one sense, we we mourn immensely for Chad's loss and we grieve and cry with him. Um, but on another sense, we rejoice for, I think his son's name is Gabriel. We rejoice for Gabriel's gain because Gabriel now stands in the presence of the Lord. He stands in the presence of his high priest who died for him, is making atonement for him, is interceding for him, and now is sharing in the reward with him. So Gabriel is with the Lord um, if you are interested in um, financially, you know, supporting the Bird family, um, I, I have been in touch with him and I asked him if there was like a GoFundMe um, because this was a, a a situation that happened when when Gabriel was doing training uh, in the military. The military is taking care of things like funeral expenses, um, so there is a a number of charities that Chad, um, I believe, they have set up on the um, on the uh, obituary. Uh, so if you want to contribute financially or support Chad in that way, um, you can go, you can find the obituary. It's easy to find online. Um, and if you want to make a donation in Gabriel's name, that that would be the way that we could truly bless his family. Um, but I think more than that, just pray for them. I, I can't even imagine the pain of this loss. Um, I hope I never have to imagine the pain of, of this kind of loss. Um, and, and I know that Chad is, um, Chad is a, is an old soul and he's a, he's a, he's a gentle, sensitive man. And, um, I just think this is a, a tragedy that, um, underscores the importance of not only understanding the gospel, but sharing the gospel and preaching the gospel, um, whether that's to your, to your kids or to yourself. Um, I think one of the, one of the reasons that, you know, if you talk to Chad right now, um, he is able to be okay I mean, he's probably not okay, but I think okay as he can be is because of a firm grasp and understanding of the the truth of the gospel and what it is that Christ has done and the security of salvation that is ours in Christ. Um, so pray for the pray for the Bird family. Um, if you want to, you know, if you need more information or need help finding out how to make that donation or or finding the obituary, feel free to reach out to me um, on on um, you can email me or you can join the Telegram chat and I can get you more information. But it really is. Um, I think it underscores the importance of this theology, underscores the importance of really preaching and understanding the security that God's people have in Christ. Because a lot of a lot of faith systems, Christian or otherwise, that security is not there. And it's a it's a dark and and sad place to be to feel like your salvation is dependent on anything except the strong shoulders of Christ. There's hope, loved ones. The resurrection and the life is in part because of what Christ does as yeah. our priest. 
And just as a modest correction so that we don't get a lot of emails, his son's name is Luke. Middle name is Gabriel. Ah, so okay. if people go and find him online, you'll yes. be able to see some of the things that Chad has written about him in the coming days. But I would echo what Tony said and continue to pray for him and to yeah. love on him. And if you're so inclined to reach out to him, I have no doubt that he appreciates all the support during this yeah. difficult time. All right. So take yep. us home, Tony. I mean, I'm not sure that there's much more to take home. I mean, I think that the priesthood of Christ is something that I think a lot of Christians intuitively understand. Um, in many ways, it's easier for us to get ahead, our head around the priestly elements of Christ's work. Um, I think that the book of Hebrews teaches more explicitly about the priesthood of Christ than, than other parts of the Bible do about Christ's prophethood. Uh, I think sometimes we push the kingship of Christ out into the future. And so it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. We think that that's, that's eschatology stuff. That's rapture stuff. Um, but at the same time, the priesthood of Christ and the priestly ministry of Christ, although it's intuitive, it's one of those realities and truths that we gasp the surface of, but we can plumb the depths of it for the rest of our lives. And we can really draw a lot of encouragement and benefit from understanding what it is that Christ has done for us as our high priest. Um, and, and it just loved ones. It's, it's, it's a beautiful theology. I mean, there's, there's theology that's like satisfying intellectually satisfying to like mull around the, you know, the ins and outs of divine simplicity or to, to sort of reflect on the arcaneness and the reality of the Trinity. And, and there's, there's certainly edification and, and piety to be had in reflecting on those things. I don't want to pretend that there isn't. But the priesthood of Christ is one of those warm, comfortable doctrines that you just sort of like, it's like a big comfy chair you just sort of like nestle into or like a big warm, cozy blanket that you wrap up in on a cold day. It's it's warm and it's sweet and it's uh, it's appealing and it's comforting. And, and those are the doctrines that I think because we tend to be more intellectual in the Reformed world, sometimes we shy away from those because they feel all warm and fuzzy. But warm and fuzzy is not bad. And I think this is a doctrine that is real warm and fuzzy. And I, I want to embrace that. Like I want to affirm that every day and twice on the Lord's day. It's, it's just a comfortable, warm, sweet doctrine to lean into. And it has all of these, uh, implications and, and elements that bolster our faith and grow our faith that I think we, we do well to sort of press into and lean into a little bit more than we do. For sure. Well, I think that about does it for this episode. Would you agree? I would agree. It seems like this is the definitive episode on the priestly ministry of Christ. There's no other option. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood.